Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, so uh, just very quickly, by way of announcement, I'm going to once again, one more time, plug uh, what's happening in a couple weeks. Uh, but first, with a shout out to Paige Turner. Uh, she has done, and I know she loves the spotlight. So uh, <laughs> um, y'all, don't be surprised if there's like 200 people, uh, and I'm being serious now, uh, in, on our church property in two weeks uh, on April 1st. Um, I raise this to say we are a church that is hospitable, uh, that loves to welcome new people in our doors. Uh, there aren't people who come through this door that, uh, that don't get some kind of hello, that get some kind of, like, how are you doing, like, like a, a greeting and a, like, you get noticed. We're going to have a lot of people who need to get greeted and noticed uh, in a couple weeks, and so we're going to need your help uh, in that way. And so my hope is that even if you don't have kids, that you come. Even if you don't think you want to uh, hunt Easter eggs, you should come. Uh, you find a way here. At the very least, it is, again, uh, free Chick-fil-A. Uh, but more than that, uh, frankly, it is an opportunity to engage with people from our community. Um, we haven't said it yet, but we have put this like on Facebook and kind of like blasted it out in a way that uh, we've like done ads and whatnot, and, and people have started to respond. Uh, we're probably up to like 100 people at this point, most of whom, uh, like literally the majority of whom, are, are not South Run folks. Um, we uh, yesterday uh, sent a, a team of kiddos and adults uh, around the neighborhoods just here uh, inviting people. And um, I have high hopes of what God's doing, not just through that, but like in our future. I, I've said it uh, in a few places, but I haven't said it from up here. Um, I'd ask that you be in prayer for our church, of course, here uh, with the, the Easter egg hunt and all, but just in our future, asking God, um, you know, where, where are we heading? Uh, how are we getting there? And what role can I play? Can you play uh, in that? Where, where is God leading us into the future the fields are ripe, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're waiting and called to be harvesters, um, and what role uh, can you play? All right, uh, let's begin with prayer, and we'll get in uh, to Galatians 4. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, um, we have confessed your goodness. We've sung about it. You are good. You have been very, very good to us. God, uh, may we live into that. May we live into the goodness that you've shown us, that we might demonstrate goodness to the rest of the world. God, you have blessed us that we might bless the world. You have given us your grace that we might show grace to the world. God, I pray in this moment, though, that you open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you have to teach us today. It's quite likely that each of us has something different we need to hear. And you know, I can't say all those things, but God, your spirit can. And so we invite your spirit into this place, speaking the words that need to be heard. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you will, let's, uh, we're going to continue uh, on in our series in Galatians. Uh, we're in chapter 4 of six chapters, which if you do the math means 
we've reached the halfway point, and now we're, we're kind of tipping past halfway. Uh, uh, Dean uh, did a wonderful job of reading our scripture uh, this morning, and um, I kind of want to do it backward, is, is what I want to do, which is to say there's two halves to this. There's verses 1 through 7, and then there's verses 8 through 20. And I'm going to start in the, the 8 through 20 part, use it to maybe remind us a little bit of where we've come from, and then really you know, hone in on 1 through 7. Uh, there's a, a lot of really interesting things happening in those opening verses, and, and I don't want us to miss them. What's happening, though, in verses 8 through 20 is that Paul is, well, he's speaking directly to the Galatians and their, specifically to their relationship uh, at this point. And, and in it, he, he talks about how uh, he met them and uh, the generosity that they showed to him. And so he says, uh, just starting in verse 8, formerly you didn't know God and you were enslaved to those by nature that are not God's, but now you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. And just to pause a second, um, this idea of being known by God, who's acting in that situation? Of course, God is acting. It's actually not the Galatians. It's, it, it's God who's doing the thing, the knowing in this case. That's a theme uh, that you kind of want to pin in, and uh, one through seven is going to really hone in on God's movement and our reception of that. And he goes on and he says, how can you turn your back then again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Very quick reminder here of what he's talking about. I, I, at least I think what he's talking about, there's a lot of debate about what he's talking about here. This, these elementary principles, it's, it's not clear. Um, but it seems this much is clear. The Galatian people uh, had received the gospel. These were likely Gentiles. They received the gospel, and they had received the spirit even. And they, uh, uh, they were worshiping in spirit and truth, and all was well until a group came and convinced them that actually there's a little more you need to do, right? There's a little more. There's, there's these laws back in uh, Leviticus, for example, and they're going to tell you that you need to eat certain foods. And they're going to tell you uh, that you need to be circumcised. And in this case right here, they're going to tell you that you need to keep certain days of the year. And these laws are, are incumbent upon you. Uh, like if your, sal your salvation is at risk, if you aren't keeping the, the laws, that is, if you aren't keeping these days and these months and these seasons and these years, Paul here is not talking about what we might do, what we are doing uh, in, in a few weeks with Easter, right? He's not saying you shouldn't have celebration days. He's not talking about what we're doing right now, which is observing a season of Lent. If I had said to you, if you don't observe Lent, your salvation is at stake, you should point me to uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 10, and say, actually, Eric, I think you're wrong. Your salvation is not at stake if you don't observe Lent. Because very clearly here, Paul says that's, that's not what's at stake. 
right? And he's saying, by doing this, and, and if you're not familiar with, like, the Jewish law, there's, there's, there's these high holy days that you have to keep, right? And that you have to observe. And if you don't observe them, well, then again, your salvation is at stake. And Paul's saying, no, like, don't, don't go back to that stuff. We've, we've moved beyond it, actually. And then he continues, and he says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Which is to say, he, a Jew, actually became a lot like a Gentile. And you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And here's where it gets interesting. And, and you see this first encounter with Paul and the Galatians. And he, he meets them with whatever the bodily ailment is. We, we don't know exactly, but perhaps it has something to do with his eyes because they say... Well, he goes on to say, uh, my condition was actually a trial to you. This was, this was a real problem. You had to get over it, right? But you didn't scorn or despise me. Instead, you received me, took me in, as if I were an angel of God or even Christ. Jesus himself is what he says. And then, verse 15, and this is one of really want you to hone in on this word blessed here. What then has become of your blessedness? What has become of your blessedness? For I testify, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me, right? In that passage, I think uh, Paul is referring to a theme that he's already introduced that would be easy to miss. And that is, it's the theme of Abraham, all right? And so Abraham has been introduced as the, uh, the father of faith, okay? And uh, Abraham's offspring, who Paul has already told us is, um, in a surprise twist, not Isaac, actually. His offspring is, is Jesus, right, who is the perfecter of faith. So if, if Abraham's the father, then, then Jesus is the perfecter of faith, and then, uh, but in uh, Genesis 12, Paul keeps referring back to this promise, okay? A promise that God makes to Abraham. And if you were to go back and read that, what you would find is that God says to Abraham, I am blessing you that you might bless others. This is part of the promise to Abraham. And so Paul here is referring to the fulfillment of the promise, the fact that these people in Galatia, they were heirs to the promise. They, were, they received this promise. And, and he's saying, what happened to your blessedness, right? He's saying, I came to you and you received me. And because I had a blessing to offer you, I was, I was told this is what I'm supposed to do back in Genesis 12. And you received that. Because you blessed me and, and God blessed you through me, right? And now he's saying, what's happened to that? You were heirs to the promise. You were in Christ. In Christ, you were receiving this promise that God made, you know, thousands of years ago to Abraham. But what now? And then he goes on. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth and and you can see Paul wrestling with them, and, and frankly, in, 
in angst. You, you can imagine Paul's, fr- not just frustration, usually anger and frustration, that's just a sign of something a little deeper within Paul. Probably a deep sadness, right? The fact that he had uh, this church that he had uh, helped form, and, and they were doing well, and then now suddenly they're straying in a different direction. And you can imagine that Paul is upset. He's deeply upset, and he is deeply grieved at their choices. And he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, these other people who have come in and convinced them, well, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. In fact, they're wanting to shut you out in order that you might make much of them, right? He's, he's kind of saying it. They're doing it all, all for their own glory, right? And Paul would quickly say, that's not why Paul's doing it. And he says, it's always good to be made much of if it's for a good purpose, not only when I'm present with you. And then he says, and, and, and these next two verses are, are very interesting to me and should be to you as well. He says, my little children, right? My little children is what he calls them. The my is interesting, right? He's not just saying, hey, little kids, <laughs> right? Uh, he's not just kind of, he's, he's calling them his own, his own children. What's fascinating, though, is He's not setting himself up as their father. He says, My little children, for whom I am again, a second time, in the anguish of childbirth, right? He sets himself as, as their mother, right? He is literally like in, he's pregnant with them. Only a second time. Uh, I can't appreciate this fully, but mom's out there. Uh, uh, Imagine if you say, well, uh, it's time to rebirth this child that I've already birthed. Uh, That is not, that sounds terrible, actually. Uh, 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 Just, and this is what Paul's saying, though. He's saying, look, we went through this process once already, and once was enough. It should have been, it should have been enough. But now, now we're having to redo it all. And you need to be essentially reborn again, right? You've walked away from this whole thing. And he says, I am travailing once again, trying to get you to to, uh, accept the gospel that was preached originally. And then he says, until Christ is formed in you. And this is where I really want to spend my time. Christ formed in you. I wonder for you what it looks like for Christ to be formed in you. If Paul were to walk through that back door and talk to you, South Run Baptist Church, what would he say? What would, be, what would it be to, be, uh, to have Christ uh, formed in us. He says, I wish I could present with, or I wish I could be present with you now, and I wish I could change my tone, much like a, a good mother uh, would say. <laughs> I wish I could change my tone. Um, but instead, he is perplexed. We get a lot of Paul's emotional world, by the way. This is kind of a side note here. 
we get a, a Paul who's clearly angry, right? We get a Paul who is disturbed, a Paul who's calling these people foolish, uh, who, who is bewildered, who is himself here perplexed, and no doubt a Paul who is deeply saddened, right? There's a lot of emotional undercurrent that's happening throughout this letter. But coming back to what would it mean for Christ to be formed in you, I think verses 1 through 7 and, and well, the whole letter uh, help us to begin to answer that question. And so I just simply want to offer you three points here. Uh, the first is, is really Christianity uh, 101, and that is faith, right? This would be number one, faith. maybe as a precursor to all of the three that I'm about to tell you, is this, that um, any action that I'm telling you to take in this moment or that you think, oh, I should do this in my Christian walk, it's really important to recognize that all of these are actually reactions. They're, they're, they're actions taken in response to God's prior action to you, Right? It's God who is always the first actor. And then we respond to that action. And then, almost always, actually, God has some kind of action in response. It's my thesis today that we could call this God's grace goes before. And then there's our part to play in God's grace. And then God shows some more grace afterward, right? And so when we look uh, at this issue of faith, we should, I guess, start just maybe a page or two earlier in, in Galatians uh, chapter 2 and kind of remind us where we came from. This, this verse that I spent a little time on in, in, in verse 20, 220, uh, it, it says, I've been crucified with Christ, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I'm who living, but it is Christ who lives within me, Right? So I die to myself, and then Christ is born in me, and what I do, I'm living out of the life that is Christ within me. And then he says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? And this issue of faith is, is clearly, uh, I mean, this is a theme throughout the letter. We see uh, Abraham has faith. And this is of deep importance to Paul because he's going to point back to Abraham's faith. And he, he wants to say, frankly, just like the, the letter to the Hebrews in, in, in chapter 11, where there's this hall of fame of faith, all these faithful people. But he wants to say, Abraham, well, he had faith, right? But he also wants to say Jesus. Jesus is the perfecter of faith. He, he was the faithful one that made it even possible for us to enter into some kind of right relationship with God. And then our part to play is also one of faithfulness and to be a people of faith. And the faith there is a faith in the sense of um, uh, like the content of what we believe, what we think about, maybe the creeds we say. I think that's really important. But frankly, more important yet is this idea of living a, a life of faith of trust, right? Of giving ourselves 
over to God completely. We sang a song, and, and, and the line that was repeated a few times was, I want more of you, God, right? I want more of you, God, which is great. I think we flip it around, though, and we need to remind ourselves, God, you want more of me. God, you want more of me. You want more of me. And a life of faith, a life of trust. This is one that says over and over again, it's not a one-time deal. It's a life that says, here's more of me, God. Here's more of me and more yet. And a lifetime of faith, uh, it requires renegotiation, we'll say. It requires coming back to the table again and again and again. And sometimes it requires saying, I believe, uh, but help my unbelief, right? And sometimes it requires us saying, I think I believe. I think I know what I believe, but God, teach me one more time. Teach me the simple things and teach me the not-so-simple things. And over a lifetime of faith, we're increasingly trusting God. And we are placing ourselves in the hands of God. And we are saying to ourselves that God, on that cross, you gave us grace with a big G. And you said... You can be my children. You are my children, and I'm welcoming you into my household through the cross. And through our faith, we say yes to that, right? We say yes to that, and we receive God's grace. It's God's grace that proceeds, and then we participate in it through our faith. And then, there are these other graces that come afterward. Uh, I was watching a television show this last week uh, called Ted Lasso. You've probably heard of it. <laughs> and there was a quote. Uh, the quote wasn't theirs. It was actually a quote of uh, a guy named uh, German named Goethe. And he says this. He says, doubt can only be removed by action. Doubt can only be removed by action. I liked this a lot. And I don't know in your life... If your faith has ever come into doubt, actually, I'm pretty sure if you've lived long enough, it has. Uh, I know from personal experience. And if you're ever doubting, which um, is often, there's a holy kind of doubt and there's an unholy kind, we'll just say, right? Some doubting, it leads to further growth. And then some doubting, it tends to shrivel us up, right? The first kind of doubting is best approached with action. If you're wondering, if you're questioning, if you think your faith is waning, if you're, take it to a friend. Take it to God. Take it to me. Take it to your Sunday school teacher. Take it to somebody. Find somebody who can help you in that walk of faith, right? Over a lifetime, you're going to have these points where you're wondering, is that right? Is that right? Is that right? The doubt that creeps in, as Goethe says, is best overcome by some kind of action. Uh, Kierkegaard called it a leap of faith. 
It's a, it's a movement when we're not sure what's going to meet us on the other side, and we take that step anyway. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever taken one of these leaps of faith and been caught by God on the other side, that is a powerful moment in life. I've had a couple of my own. And it's those moments that I often look back to then in times where that faith is uh, maybe getting a little shaky, and I, and I remember Oh, yeah, that, that happened. God met me in that place where I needed God to meet me. And maybe that's some of you. The second thing I would say <clears throat> as to how is Christ formed in me is what we find in the first seven verses uh, of chapter 4. And so if we can turn there. We find actually a lot of things and, and really just kind of point to, uh, point to just two more. Uh, we find Paul saying this in the, the opening verses. I mean that the heir, the heir being the heir to uh, Abraham's promises, right? The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, not going to get into it, but what Paul is saying is that time that sits between Abraham and the time that Jesus comes, essentially a, a, uh, the faith that is formed is, is like a child who hasn't yet found its fulfillment, hasn't reached that age of maturity, and so it doesn't have the inheritance, even though it is his, it's not exactly his, until the time comes. And then he says in verse 3, the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world and, and we're waiting. We're waiting on, what he says next, the fullness of time. We're waiting on that pivotal moment. And that pivotal moment came in one person. Christianity 101 here. Jesus is the great Sunday school answer. And Jesus comes in the fullness of time when it's ready for all of the promises to be yes and amen in him. And in the fullness of time, what happens? Well, God sends forth his son. And I want you to take note of who's doing all the acting here. It's God, it's Jesus, and it's the Spirit. And who's doing all the receiving? It's us. And it goes like this. So God sends forth his son, who's born of a woman and born under the law. And Jesus redeems those who were under the law so that we might receive, right? We're receiving what? We're receiving adoption as sons. And then because we're sons... Because we're sons and daughters of God, God has sent now the Spirit, the Spirit of His Son. And what is that Spirit doing? Well, it is in our hearts, and the Spirit is crying out for us the most amazing thing possible, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We're no longer slaves. We're sons, and we're a son, then we are heirs through God. So the second thing is this, this idea that the spirit within us is crying out, Abba, Father, is uh, 
Well, it, it is miraculous. I almost said borderline. It is miraculous. It is God working in us in a supernatural kind of way. That's what a miracle is. It's the supernatural at work. And so the Spirit crying out, Abba, Father, let's just step back a second. It means we are children. Maybe we're even those little children that Paul talked about, right? And we're crying out, uh, what, what do children do? Well, they are dependent. They are dependent on their parents, right? They're dependent on their dads and their moms. And the, the, the question you should be asking yourself is, when I cry out, Abba, Father, first of all, do I? And in what situations am I dependent on God the Father? And if you can go a week or, or two weeks or however long without some kind of feeling of, of dependence on God, it, it should cause you to ask yourself, well, if I'm not depending on God on a routine basis, well, then what am I depending on? What is my dependence really in? Right? When the stock market crashes, what am I really depending on? When my job is canceled and, and I'm, or I'm fired or, or, or the company uh, sends me somewhere else, or what am I really depending on? I lose my friends. or What am I really depending on? And here the... The Abba Father within us, the Spirit crying out, reminds us, it calls us back to that primary dependence that we should all have. Are we dependent on God? I was going to read it, but I want to keep moving here. The only other time that this phrase, Abba Father, gets used, other than Paul in, in Romans 8, uh, which, by the way, if, if you want some homework, uh, comparing Romans 8 and Galatians 4, they're almost like verbatim, except Gal uh, Romans just kind of, it, it expands it, right? There's a lot there. Um, but the only other time Abba Father appears is, is on Jesus' lips, right? And here it's in Mark uh, 14, 36, if you want to look it up at home again, a little more homework. And what's happening at this point in Mark 14 is that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is going to be crucified. And he's crying out to God and he says, Abba, Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want to die, is what he says. I don't want to die. And then he says, but your will be done. I don't personally, my, my flesh here is saying, I'm doing okay. <laughs> I don't want to go through with this. But the spirit in me is crying out, your will be done. It's crying out, I'm dependent on you, God. I am uh, wholly and completely yours. And in that moment, we get a reflection, a reflection of who we should be. People who are dependent on the Father in a way that frankly, we often are not. But here again, God's grace both precedes and succeeds your dependence. God shows up before, during, and after your dependence on him. 
God has been there before you ever show up and say, you know what, I do want to depend on God. That is something I want to put my life into. And then God shows up again and again and again and again thereafter. And so he begins with grace and he continues with grace and he will always end with grace. And just a warning, it may not be the grace you want. Uh, sometimes we get the answers that uh, we didn't actually go for, that we didn't want, right? Jesus himself saying, this isn't the thing I want, but I'm going to follow you anyway. Third and final point here is that in verse 6, it again reminds us that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The same spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And so as we go out today, if we are to be people in whom Jesus is formed, what we need to be doing, if there's an action to be played, is we need to be cultivating the spirit within us, right? And there's there's a whole market of books out there for you, right? There's spiritual disciplines galore. And these are great, by the way. I highly, highly recommend this. I think this is of vital importance to discipleship, uh, to, uh, to training the, the spirit within. But I, I kind of want to leave you with something just uh, maybe a little bit uh, on the margins of, of that. And that is um, that if grace preceded you, and grace is going to succeed you. Um, and all of this is wrapped in God's graciousness. Then cultivating a life of the Spirit means cultivating a life that is dependent upon God's grace. It trusts and has faith that God will meet us on the other side when we take that leap of faith right? That is not an easy thing to do. It's a whole lot easier to put my faith in, again, the stock market, even if it tumbles sometimes and goes up and up. But it's a whole lot harder, though you get used to it, (laughs) of taking steps of faith and relying on God to put the ground underneath every foot and every step you're taking. And then the, the other thing connected to cultivating the life of the Spirit is that if grace, again, precedes you and grace succeeds you and uh, Christ's Spirit is within all that, then there is a graciousness to God and Christ's Spirit that he is pulling into us that at times can be uncomfortable. And what I mean specifically is that we are called to be graceful people too. And that when we are met in real life with a situation where we don't want to respond with grace, we don't want to respond with generosity, with love, we should always be reminded of, again, the grace that has preceded us and the grace that will succeed us And as we get formed into the image of Christ, it should work itself out into being graceful people ourselves.
So the question I want to leave you with is, it's both simple in that it's one phrase, and it's a lifetime of work. Has Christ been formed in you? It's the very thing that Paul wants for these Galatian people. I'm 100% sure it's the very thing God wants for South Rome Baptist Church and for each person sitting in the pew right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our Abba Father. We come to you often in times of need, in times of crisis, and God, you are gracious in those times, and you are good in those times. God, may we be people in whom Christ is formed, and we take on the mind of Christ, but let us not stop there the heart of Christ, the emotions of Christ. May we walk as Christ walked. May we die to ourselves, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, and may Christ be alive in us. May we be formed into your image. God, I imagine if we do so, Lord, there's a lot of power in that a subversive kind of power that, frankly, our nation needs right now. At the very least, the community around us needs it. And so I pray, Lord, that we show up in that way. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you will, let's uh, stand together um, and we'll sing one final song. <clears throat>